you did, son. I know what you did. Ever hear words like that? Perhaps some of us heard words like that when we were trying to justify a wrong. Maybe we tried hiding something. Somebody else saw. I know what you did. And such words pierce our inner self in those moments and they expose us and they they lay us bare before the undeniable truth. But you know, the same words could uh, encourage us, couldn't they? Perhaps you acted with integrity while others are accusing you of wrongdoing. Uh, Maybe you've been serving others in secret, not expecting any, any praise, but a person you, you highly respect pulls you aside one day and says, I know what you did. And such words come as a, a deep sense of relief in those moments. You, you feel supported to, to persevere in faithfulness. Depending on the context, I know what you did, could either expose you or encourage you. It could convict you, or it could commend you. When we come to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus will repeatedly say these words, I know your works. I know your works. Jesus knows his churches. He knows what we're facing He knows their faithfulness and good deeds. He also knows their sins and the places where they have compromised. And it's from these assessments by Jesus that we learn what sort of church we ought to be in following Jesus. So Jesus begins here with the church in Ephesus. Verse 1 says... To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. This is one of seven messages 
to seven churches. And there are a few things that characterize all of these messages. One is that Jesus addresses each message to an angel's. Some have suggested that messenger is the better translation and, and a human agent is in view, but, but there are good reasons to view these as heavenly agents. Everywhere else in Revelation, this word refers to angels. Chapter 1, verse 20, distinguishes the stars from the lampstands, and presumably a human agent would belong to the lampstands, that is, the churches. Also, a common feature of Revelation is that Jesus' message comes through angels. And isn't it Paul who who tells us that angels are presiding over the assemblies when when we gather in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 5? And so by writing to seven angels, Jesus seems to be unveiling the church's true heavenly nature. We are not merely an earthly people. We have been seated with Christ. In the heavenly places. Something else about these seven messages is that they're written for one church and for all churches simultaneously. Each church differs from others in where it's located and, and what it's facing and, and how it's faithful or faithless, but every message ends with these words He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. Revelation as a whole was meant to be circulated to all of the churches so that all of the churches were reading each other's letters and benefiting from them. Also, Jesus links every message with the vision of His glory in chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. Each message begins with some aspect of Jesus' glory that He has already revealed about Himself and that that church needs to take more seriously. So verse 1, for example, says the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's from chapter 1, verse 13, 16, and 20. So the stars are the angels, and for Jesus to hold them in his right hand is 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 an image of, of his sovereign power. He also walks among the lampstands, which are the churches. And like the priests who tended the lampstands in the tabernacle, so we see Jesus here tending to his churches. He walks among them. He knows what each church needs for their lamp to burn brightly. And this image of him walking among the lampstand will fit what he warns later on about removing it. Each message also comes with Jesus' divine authority. You notice how verse 1 begins, the words of. And then look over at chapter 2, verse 8, the words of. And on and on through the next five letters, the words of, the words of. Uh, That phrase appears repeatedly in the Old Testament when it's introducing prophecy, except that you've usually seen it translated, thus says the Lord. So when prophets said, thus says the Lord, people received the message as the very words of God, but not because the words originated with the prophet. Okay, the word originated with God and was delivered through the prophet. These messages are coming directly from the glorified Christ. 
And so his words carry the same authority reserved for God alone in the Old Testament. And so we owe Jesus all our attention and allegiance here. Uh, One more observation is that these messages exist to help you make it to the new Jerusalem. Every message closes with a promise that is bound up with the new Jerusalem of chapters 21 and 22. And so Jesus has words of encouragement here for the churches, but he also has some pretty cutting rebukes and severe warnings. And listen, you need both to make it to the new Jerusalem. You need both the encouragement and the rebuke. And they are designed to get you to the new Jerusalem. So take heed to them both. Jesus has glorious aims for you in them. Now, having said that about all the letters, let's focus now on what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. The first thing we see is what Jesus commends. What Jesus commends as he walks among the churches, Jesus finds Christians in Ephesus doing some things very well. So verse 2 says, I know your works. Now that can be a frightening thing because in verse 6 he says, I hate the works of the Nicolaitans. So there are some works Jesus hates. Verse 6 tells us, tells us this. And from chapter 2 we learn that those works include false teaching and idolatry. So Jesus hates those works. But there are works Jesus loves. Works that promote God's worship, works that align with Jesus' kingdom. And a few examples he mentions in verse 2. He commends their toil and patient endurance. Okay, the next time that this word toil comes up is in chapter 14, verse 13, where the martyrs enter the rest of Christ... In order to enter into the presence of Christ in order to rest from their toil. And the toil that's described in the verse prior to that is keeping the commandments of God in the face of death. He also says endurance. Endurance has to do with this long standing obedience in the face of trial. And Jesus is commending this, this work. He also commends their intolerance of evil people. Uh, he says this in a few different ways. Verse 2. How you cannot bear with those who are evil. And then there's a play on words in verse 3. You are bearing up for my namesake. So you cannot bear with those who are evil. You are bearing up for my namesake. There's kind of two sides of the same coin. And the picture is that these evil kingdoms of the world are kind of pressuring the church to compromise, to to buy into their uh, way of thinking, to exchange the truth of God for lies. Uh, Sometimes it's overt, sometimes it's, it's subtle as the world gradually desensitizes us to what's unholy. And yet this church doesn't budge. It bears up for Christ's name. It doesn't tolerate evildoers in the church. Another way he says it comes in verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And again, from chapter 2, it seems that this group was persuading churches to compromise with false teaching that leads to idolatry, that leads to works that undermine the worship of God, that lead to works that enslave God's people to evil practices. And so it is right for a church to hate 
evil works, to hate works that ignore the word of God and undermine the worship of God. One more thing Jesus commends here. They're able to discern false teachers. Uh, Verse 2, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Okay, some of you might recall the early days of, of, of this church in Ephesus when we went through the book of Acts. And we can remember Paul warning the church there, to, I mean the elders of that church, to pay careful attention to yourselves. Because after Paul uh, left, he knew that, that uh, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so 30 years later, we find this church took Paul's words very seriously. They were careful to test the spirits to see whether they were from God or whether they were from the Antichrist. So in some, then, we, we could say that this church is full of Christians who are hardworking morally resilient, and doctrinally orthodox. And I know a lot of you, and I can hear you saying, yeah boy, I want to be that church. Maybe you even typed words into the search bar, and you're Google to, to find a church like that in Fort Worth. But that's not all that makes a church. At least a church that pleases Jesus. Jesus threatens to unchurch this church if they don't revive one crucial virtue. Look now at what Jesus condemns and threatens. What he condemns and threatens. Verse 4. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And other translations use first love. But the, uh, the ESV seems to capture the, the temporal aspect that's embedded in this, in this phrase. Later in chapter 2, verse 19, John, John uses the same wording to, to talk about, uh, to, to contrast works that a church had done like early in its life uh, and how they had surpassed those works with, with later, even better, superior works uh, in the church's life. And so if we apply that here, that, that, so you have like first works versus later works. If you apply that here, you have their first love. So the love that the, the, the Ephesian church had at their very beginning versus the love they had now which had, had waned. In fact, it's even stronger than that. They abandoned their love like a spouse abandoning a marriage. That's the the language here. Now, it's hard to say whether this love is love for Christ or love for one another. In the end, I don't think we have to choose... The two are closely linked in John's writings. A few things lead me to believe that maybe the emphasis here is falling on love for one another. Jesus praises them for their endurance, for bearing up for his namesake, for hating what's evil, 
and elsewhere in the New Testament, we could say, hey, those are, those are things that it would evidence a love for Christ. Also, Jesus has very good things to say about their negative relations to outsiders, but he has nothing to say about their positive relations to one another. I just want to thank Colby Jones for pointing that out to me. So, so love for one another seems to be the emphasis. At the same time, we must acknowledge that throughout John's other writings, to grow cold in our love for one another means that we have grown cold in our love for Christ. Okay, 1 John 4.20. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So, so here's a church that was hardworking, morally resilient, doctrinally orthodox, and yet they endanger themselves by abandoning love, a central and necessary virtue to the life of a true church. And it's so necessary that Jesus threatens to undo them if they don't repent from their lovelessness. Uh, verse 5, if you don't repent... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. We know from chapter 1, verse 20, the lampstands are the churches. Jesus removes your lampstand, you're not a church. Okay? You might get together with your tribe, but in Jesus' eyes, you're not a church. That's how crucial love is to the life and health and endurance of a local church. It's not enough to confess and do the right things. We must love Christ and from that love, love one another. You can hear echoes of 1 Corinthians 13 here. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and, I, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, everybody would look at that and be like, man, that guy's sacrificing a lot. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing, Paul says. So if you work hard and you stay morally resilient and doctrinally sound but have not love, you are nothing. Now, why he mentions lampstand may puzzle us at first, but I think, I think we, we see some things kind of coming together when we zoom out later in chapter 11, verse 4. We discover that a lampstand uh, signifies the church's witness to the world. Okay, and so the lampstand in the tabernacle, it burned continuously to light the way into God's presence. That's what the church is supposed to be, lighting the way for people in, into God's presence. Okay, and according to John's gospel, chapter 13, chapter 17, what happens when the church loves one another? They become a witness to the world, lighting the way into God's presence. It's by our love for one another that the world knows that the Father sent the Son. And so Jesus is saying, if you don't return to the love that you had at first, it will be the end of your witness to the world because you will no longer be a church. And he will see to that. So, what must they do? They're not without hope. Jesus is still walking in their midst. He speaks 
to turn them around. We see next what Jesus commands. We find three imperatives in verse 5. Remember, repent, and do. Okay, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Okay, so he's telling them, look back at that love you once had. Consider what that love uh, for each other looked like. Consider uh, how you cherished God's love for you. And in cherishing God's love for you, it spilled over into your love for, for one another. Jesus wants them to imitate that love once again, which is why he adds repent. So repentance includes not just abandoning sinful ways, but returning to Christ and His ways. It's a complete 180 from, from what you were doing before and then an active pursuit of what Jesus demands now. And so here that means pursuing love, not sitting around until you like one another. They must love now. And how do you do that? Well, the next imperative says, do the works you did at first. So return to love by doing the works you did at first. So love works. It's not merely a feeling, though that's included. Love is acting here for the good of another. Love is valuing what is good for somebody else, and then it is spending yourself sacrificially to see them and help them obtain that good in God. John's other writings are very helpful here. For example, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 to 18. By this we know love, that Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or work. Same word that John is using in Revelation. Let us not love in word or talk, but in work and in truth. So the works that demonstrate love, according to 1 John, are the works like meeting your brother's needs. Uh, Works like sacrificing to serve the good of your brother and sister. Uh, In 3 John 8, love works yet again by supporting missionaries who who go out for the sake of of Jesus' name. We could also invite Paul's letter, we can invite in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, right, in their early days to see what love looks like. What's he talking about? And he says things like making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and working hard with your hands so that you might have something to share with anyone in need and speaking words that impart grace to the hearer and fit the occasion. And so this church was once zealous in these things. John even says uh, in 3 John 6 that, that when these missionaries were traveling to other churches, they would brag about the church in Ephesus and their love. And, but not even a generation passed before they abandoned it. And now they must renew their efforts in love. They must return to those first works. Now, if they overcome lovelessness and obey Jesus' commands, He promises eternal life. Uh, Look now at what Jesus promises. In verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Paradise. That word appears numerous times in the Old Testament. 
It's just that you've heard it translated more often as garden, as in the garden of God. Eden. Okay? So together with the tree of life, all sorts of connections should be firing in your minds back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. All right, so the garden or paradise was known for its beauty and plenty, well-watered, lush greenery, massive trees, precious stones, abundant food, joy and gladness is always found in her. These comes from descriptions from Genesis itself and Ezekiel when he's, when he's describing the garden and Isaiah. But greater than any of these things was life in God's presence. The tree of life was in the garden, and to eat from the tree meant that you lived forever in God's presence. But man rebelled against God. Man tried to be God instead of trusting God. And so God banished man from that garden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24 says, God drove out the man... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so what we're seeing there is that sin means we no longer have access to the tree of life. And in Adam, that is all of our story. Our sin keeps us from access to eternal life. But God... God's Son came into the world to reverse that for you. Okay? Jesus died to remove your sins, to remove that barrier, and to give you access to the tree of life. And the final pages of Revelation uh, paint this picture for God's people. So the Bible ends with a tree in the garden, and it in, uh, begins with a tree in the garden, and it ends with a tree in the garden. It says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God. And of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. And so it's through Jesus that you share in the tree of life. It is through Jesus that you gain life in God's presence again. It is through Jesus that we might find rest and joy and peace again in the garden of God, and it will be an even better garden because you can't die there and you can't fall into sin anymore. But listen, Jesus grants that access only to those who follow Him. Jesus promises that access only to those who conquer, who overcome, and who endure to the end. And in this case, who endure in love. So if you have ears to hear the Spirit today, if right now you are seeing the importance of love in the church, if you are convicted by your lovelessness and choose to follow Jesus by pursuing love in the church then the tree of life is yours. That's who it's promised to. So that's his message to the church in Ephesus. That is the message that all seven churches must hear, and that is the message we must hear. And I just want to say, how desperately 
do you want to eat of that tree of life? Then let us not abandon love. We have a few things to reflect on for ourselves. For starters, I just want to clarify, imitate the qualities that Jesus commends in this church. Rebuking them for lovelessness does not mean they should abandon hard work or moral resilience or doctrinal orthodoxy. I mean, people in our culture are just fine with love as long as you don't bring these other three things with it. And that's because when our culture speaks of love, what it has in mind is moral permissiveness. Okay, that is, you're, you are a loving person to the degree you let me keep doing whatever I want. All right, and by rebuking this church for abandoning love, Jesus isn't telling them to be morally permissive. In pursuing love, uh, in pursuing love don't abandon what Jesus commends here. Jesus says it is right to keep working hard when those opposed to Christ's kingdom want to stop you. Right? It is right not to tolerate those who practice evil. It is right uh, to hate the works that Jesus hates, that, that, that undermine God's exclusive worship. It is right to hate abortion and, and the porn industry and human trafficking and prejudice and racism and fudging numbers and covetousness. Right? It's right to hate the anger and the greed and the lust of your own heart. Pursuing love doesn't mean we abandon any of that. It does mean that we're washing feet while we're doing those other things. It does mean that your life looks a whole lot like the one who loved you and bled to save you when he hated your works. Something else we need to see. No amount of what you get right can become an excuse for what you get wrong. Has someone ever approached you about sin in your life? Maybe some excesses that they don't think align with Scripture, maybe a pattern of behavior that doesn't reflect Christ and, and the little inner lawyer in you stands up and starts mounting the defense. Right? Look at all the things I've done right, though. Or, or maybe it's, it's you going to bat for others who agree with all of your positions on things. Theologically, politically. And someone steps in and says, hey, this, this guy or this gal is really off here. This is where they're getting things wrong and you start mounting your defense. Yeah, but look at all the stuff they get right. I want you to see how much this church here gets right, folks. And yet Jesus doesn't hesitate to warn them of imminent judgment. I will come and remove your lampstand if you don't repent of your lovelessness. When Jesus puts his finger on something in your life, the only appropriate response is humility and admission. I'm wrong and I must repent. He is the king. 
When the Lord puts something on your life, puts his finger on something in your life that needs to change, you don't mount your defense. You humble yourself. And you repent. If you try to justify wrong with all that you get right, you're in a dangerous place, and you're putting the church in a dangerous place. Pharisees do that. Thank you, God, that I am not like those other men. The rich young ruler did that. All these commands I have kept from my youth, Jesus, one thing you still lack. One thing. And he proved not to be in Jesus. Also, our church must be characterized by love, not merely by what we're against. Our church must be characterized by love, not merely by what we're against. I don't think this is true of every person in this room, but I do think it's a danger in the more conservative circles that we associate with regularly. Our circles are very loud in letting others know what we're against. We are against abortion, it's murder. We are against homosexuality, it warps marriage. We are against socialism, it's rooted in a faulty view of human nature. We're against Roman Catholicism and the prosperity gospel and critical race theory, all of which skew the truth of Scripture. And one could go on with the list of things that we conservatives are against, some more loudly against than others. And I want to acknowledge, as Jesus does here, that there's a place for the church to discern falsehood and expose evil. At the same time, this passage forces us to recognize how necessary is the more positive pursuit of love. If all that people can say of us is what we're against, then we have failed the world and we have failed our Lord. Without love, we are nothing. Jesus expects his church to be characterized by love. John 13, 34, As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 1 Corinthians 16, 14, Paul says, Let all that you do be done in love. Galatians 5, The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. To mature in Christ's likeness, according to Ephesians 4, is to grow in love. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. I want you to just picture a marriage for a minute. What sort of marriage would you have if there was no love? Only hard work, duty, hey, we're avoiding divorce... Always criticizing when something's off. But no pursuit of love. It wouldn't be much of a marriage. At least not one that's healthy. If that marriage is going to last, if it's going to image Christ's relationship to his bride, then the spouses must revive love. 
They must actively pursue love. And that is the same with us, church. So it's not just that we are against abortion. No, love will play itself out in the terms of pursuing adoption and supporting mothers in need. It's not just against homosexuality, but having strong marriages ourselves in this church and a robust vision of what an image bearer is. It's not just against socialism, but it is a being so generous with our money that we are constantly meeting the needs of others. It's not just being against critical race theory. It is showing hospitality and having relationships with people who aren't like you. And centering your relationships around Christ and working towards justice where that is needed. Have you abandoned the love you had at first? Has serving one another become only a duty, only a motion that you're going through? When opportunities come to serve, do you find yourself sighing? Like, oh, not again. I just served those people. Don't they know? Has the pursuit of moral purity become only something you do because that's the conservative way around here? That's what keeps us looking good before others. It's what we do here in our family. When the pursuit of purity ought to come from a love for Christ's purity and a love for others and how our actions will affect them. Has the Word of God become a mere manual for morality without the sweetness of meeting with Jesus in the pages of this text and adoring His person? Then you need to ask, have you abandoned your first love? Have you become such a heresy hunter that it's hard for you to shake feeling suspicious of everybody but yourself. I thought this was a good paragraph from Robert Mounts. It seems, he says, it seems probably that desire for sound teaching and the resulting forthright action to exclude all imposters had created a climate of suspicion in which love within the believing community could no longer exist. Unfortunately, the history of the church has all too many instances of unholy zeal in the pursuit of truth. Good works and pure doctrine are not adequate substitutes for that rich relationship of mutual love shared by those who've experienced the redemptive love of God. And so reading that, I was reminded of the sad story of A.W. Pink. Some of you know A.W. Pink. You probably cut your teeth theologically, on his book, The Sovereignty of God. At the start, he was known for being very careful theologically. But the last decade of his life, he spent by himself, secluded in some place, and he wouldn't join a church because he couldn't find one that agreed with him on every point. 
We cannot follow his example of separatism and lovelessness. Have you become so fixated on discerning false teaching that you have grown cynical about the church? It's hard for you to hold out any hope for the church. The rich theology that once caused your heart to soar in worship and to spread Christ's name to your neighbors and the nations, has it become just a club to beat other people down with? Has sound doctrine, which has as its goal fellowship with God, has doctrine become just a badge you wear to show everybody else what team you're on? Is it easy for you to argue on social media, but hard to spend time in prayer? Both to commune with God and to pray for those that you're engaging? Don't abandon love, church. Pursue love. Cultivate it. Keep your love for Christ and your love for one another vibrant here. And here's how. Revive your love by meditating on Christ's love. Revive your love by meditating on Christ. It's by meditating on Christ's love that the Holy Spirit will come and move you to love. And I'm not saying to start with the cross here. You need to go back further. You need to meditate on what Christ's love for the Father looked like in eternity past, and His love for the Son, and the fellowship in love that they shared through the Holy Spirit. This passionate, pure, perfect, unending, never-ending never fountain of love. Start there. Meditate on that love there. And then consider how the Trinity chose to love us despite how sinful we are. God chose to love us, send His Son to die for us, that we might be brought into that very love that the triune God Himself has. He loved us when we were enemies giving in His own Son to remove our sins that we might have fellowship with this loving God. Consider also how Jesus' love continues for you right now. That's what chapter 1, verse 5 said. To Him who loves us. Present tense. Who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. So this glorious exalted Christ of chapter 1. I mean, He could crush you in an instant and you would deserve it, and yet He loves you still and, and walks among us. He loves us now. And then, we've got the Trinity. We've got God choosing to love us despite our sin. We've got Christ's present love for us now. And I want you to also meditate and consider how the new Jerusalem will be a place of love. If you want to grow in love, meditate on that future community 
of the new heavens and the new earth. Christ's love in us will be complete and it will be full and it will be unending. Never again will we act toward each other in a way that is not loving. There will only be a loving relationship between God's people. We will love freely and passionately without end. And the love that we see in one another will only move us to greater and greater and greater love for Christ and each other. That's the community that we should be reflecting now. Right? You are an outcropping of what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. We're not getting it perfect here. But people should be able to look in and see, I want that love that's going to be characteristic of the new heavens and the new earth. That's the community we should pray for. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would cause your word to bear fruit in love. Love within us. Love going out one another. Make this happen by the power of your spirit. And begin that work in us now as we come and eat at the table of the one who loved us. Amen.